Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Raw Show with Michael McDonald and another very special guest. We have Bruce Hartman joining me today. Bruce, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the opportunity, Michael. Bruce is the founder and creator of Gideon Partners, an advisory firm committed to working with people into a brighter future. As a navigate life and career transitions, Hartman was the executive VP and CFO at Yankee Candles Company, Cushman and Wakefield, and Footlocker Inc., where he established global banking and capital market structures and contributed to significant increases in enterprise value. He is the author of the new book, Jesus and Co., connecting the lessons of the gospel with today's business world so i thought we'd we start with your background if that's okay bruce show could you share with with me and our listeners where you were born and what it was like for you growing up yeah i was born in uh portland maine which is uh the northernest most it's the northernest most state in the united states a small uh fishing town um and it was a it was a wonderful place to grow up wonderful people great values um and from, you know, from that experience, I learned a lot about uh, common people and that all people are of value and that just because a person is famous and powerful doesn't necessarily mean that other people aren't. And that was probably the single biggest lesson I learned from growing up in a smaller part of the United States. Right. So, what was it? Well, what was it like in terms of, of education? And I mean, did you go through the the system as as you would kind of expect, or was it a little bit different? No, it was it was very typical. Uh, graduated from high school. I went to a, a small school in Boston, uh, mostly to experience life in a different city. And I went to uh, Suffolk University in Boston. I graduated, by the way, in three three and a half years and not four, um, accelerated my uh, education. And uh, it was a great education, great teachers. Our classrooms were small and very intimate school. And I received a lot of hands-on practical experience and really proud of uh, the university and what they taught me. Right, so is it the hands-on that that helped you graduate sooner or what, what kind of led up to that? Well, I am a, a type A personality. That's probably the single biggest thing, Michael. You know, always <laughs> wanting to do better and, and yeah. exceed. And um, I, so instead of just taking the typical fall, spring, I also took fall, spring, and summer. And that's why I was able to accelerate my graduation and had some great supportive professors to help me along the way. All right, so you didn't, you basically worked more than than everybody else during that year rather than taking the holidays off. Yes. All right, so what happened next then? So did you have a job or did you start the the corporate ladder straight away? I mean, what was the initial initial start for you? Well, the initial start, you know, as it is for most, I was an accounting major. So for most of us, uh, you want to go work for one of the, big four firms. In those days, Michael, it was the big eight. So I went to work for a company called Haskins and Sells, which is now the company you would know and the, your listeners would know as Deloitte Touche. And it's a very normal process. It's uh, you go to get your CPA and you work with clients. And it's a really great training ground because you learn how other businesses work. But the most important thing you learn is you learn about the discipline of doing a great job 
Um, you're surrounded with some of the best people in the world, and that helps you with your ethics. And particularly for a young person, you know, working in a big company that's extraordinarily professional really sets you up for the rest of your uh, career in terms of how to get things done, how to work with other people, how to analyze things. And most importantly, when you work with uh, professional people, you learn about integrity. Right. So how, how would that work in terms of, because obviously if you're working with a, a big corporation, you're working with other people that, that might also have integrity. I mean, I could be wrong on saying that. Maybe you can elaborate on that. But if, if everyone has that level of integrity that, that you kind of need to get the job done, I mean, what's, what's that like? Are you, are you so much more productive or is it a bit more cutthroat, a bit more pressured? I mean, what, what's it like? Well, you know, a couple of things. It's a really good question. Um, I was very careful where I went to work. I like to work on teams and I like to work with great brands. Uh, I think it's very difficult for, to work for a company with questionable business practices because there's always that question of compromise and tension. So, you know, I actually more sought out the companies that fit how I wanted to live as opposed to uh, just kind of happen to be there. So it, at Deloitte, certainly that gave me a big help uh, and, and a big start. From that place, I went to work for some of these wonderful companies that you were mentioning. My most formative company was, uh, as, a, as a young person, I went to work for May Department Stores, which is now owned by Macy's. Um, at the time, it was an independent department store, one of the largest in the U.S. And I was constantly surrounded by terrific people that knew how to do the right thing. And the reason why that's important to me is I don't like to waste a lot of time on stuff that's just not the right way to do things. Um, it, to, when, I, when I see businesses, and I see it today in my, in my practice, when you have short-term thinking or you're doing things just for expedience, just to get ahead, it actually is longer because um, you, you get hurt reputationally. Uh, there's a lot of uh, extra work you have to put into it. But when you take the couple extra hours to think things through and think about the right way to do things, in the long run, it's actually a shorter approach. So for me, it was as much about what fit my core values as it was about not wasting a lot of time. Right, so would, would that have a big part to play in terms of your ability to, to have that level of integrity that you want is you need to find a company that has very similar core values to yourself so then that the company and yourself are more aligned or is, is, is the process a little bit different? Because I mean, I can't imagine that companies will, will be able to, to display that, I guess, before you get in with the company. I mean, do, do people have their, their values and, and what it means to, to them to be productive and, and operate as a business for everyone to see? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, to me, it's a mutual process. I mean, obviously, when you're interviewing, you want to get the job. Uh, but to me, that's not the only step. The, the second thing you have to think about is, do you want the job? Um, <clears throat> So I was always fortunate enough that I was generally uh, able to find opportunities at some of these terrific companies. 
But what I looked for in a company, and, and then later on as I became a senior manager, I looked for in people of five things. Number one, integrity. Number two, the ability to get things done. Number three was uh, either, either they had a process in place or they had managers that encouraged developing other people. Uh, companies that accepted fact-based analysis and not opinion analysis. And the fifth is, the one thing I admire in people uh, is their ability to listen to learn. Um, you can listen, but when you listen truly to get what the other person's opinion is, that's probably the most effective way to learn. So if I saw those five characteristics and I could rate them on a scale of one to five, somewhere in the high fours, they usually felt like I had a match with my values. But later on, again, as I was, became a senior manager, I started to hire people and promote people that had those same five core values. Right, got you. So did you, <clears throat> was this during the interview process then? So did you actually have particular cues from certain people that they made you think, ah, that must mean that they have X, Y, and Z or, or not. So we use the, the fact-based analysis, for instance. So would you have certain cues or ask certain questions that means that their, their answers told you that they value facts over opinions? I mean, what, what sort of things did you do to try and establish whether they actually had those values? So, the, so there's, three, there's three things that uh, I would do. One is it's always great to have inside information. So in other words, you knew people that worked at that corporation and you could have frank conversations with them. Uh, I was always lucky enough to go work someplace where I knew the people there and I knew their values. Uh, so that was, that was always number one. The second thing is you can pick up a lot of clues uh, like if you take the listen to learn um, skill, you can pick that up quickly in an interview. If the interview is going where it's a two-way exchange of conversation and it's not one person talking over the other person or interrupting them or overselling their point, that was always a good clue that you had somebody that listens to learn. Uh, another key, believe it or not, one of the other key things that I would look at is getting things done. You looked at a company that was profitable, but if you ask the question, how much of your new product line is different? If they said, well, we don't, we don't really ever change, you know, to me, that would be a red flag that that's not a company that's going to thrive or survive in the long term. Uh, for instance, at made apartment stores, they would change 25% of their individual product lines every year. It's the same with Foot Locker. So these are companies that weren't in, you know, they weren't ingrained with cronyism. They were ingrained with listening to people that had new ideas and knew the value of constructive change. Right, got you. So it's almost, it's almost like if, if a company is doing the same thing over and over again, then they're, they're not really improving or they're not like willing to, to be open to new ideas. It probably means they might not be, be taking them in or they might not be searching for them, which gets, sort of comes back to this listen to learn kind of thing because you're more likely to, to take on 
viewpoints or in, in, innovate the products? I mean, you mentioned twenty five percent from from most companies that, that you work with. So that's that probably does show like a, a keenness to change and a keenness to listen to their customers, maybe to try and see how they can improve what they're doing. Yeah, companies. Uh, you know, one of the things I tell my corporate clients. Uh, that the, the value of change, if it's constructive change, and we shouldn't change things just for the sake of change, but the, the value of change really does two things. If, if your business isn't changing, you're actually going backwards. It's kind of like a car that's parked on a hill in neutral. It's just going to slowly go down and constantly be in chronic crisis. Yeah. But the, the other value, the other value of change is the, the, and this one gets back to my roots in New England, the average person's really smart and the ability to listen to everybody. Many times clues will come about what to do next, not from the leadership, but from the individuals in the company that observe something. So if a, a person feels empowered and has the freedom to speak respectfully and constructively and they're listened to that doubles the value of a corporation's staff. So as opposed to command and control management, which is, this is what I want you to do, and this is how I want you to do it, without getting back input, is extraordinarily limiting to the individual. However, as a manager, if you change that from, this is what I want you to do, to asking a question, this is what I think we need to do, what do you think? It's, it's almost the same question, but you're inviting somebody to talk back. And that's, uh, to me, one of the big clues when you're either hiring people or you're going to work for a company. Will they ask you, what do you think? Right. So what, have you got any particular things that you might ask to try and engage with whether they have any of, of these five things? I mean, you, you mentioned the listen to learn one, which was, which was quite good. Thanks for, for sharing that. I mean, if, are there any go-to things for each of the individual values that you you want to see if they have i mean you mentioned having someone in the company that you know which might make the the job a little bit easier but if you are having a conversation with with someone in, in a particular company have you got any particular things that you might use any words that you might say well so one of the things i'll give you a practical example i was helping a car dealership and i asked them who their number one salesperson was so obviously that's going to get you a one word answer, but it sets you up for the next question. So this individual said, well, his name is Tom. Okay. So now I have, now I have the ability to ask the follow-up. Why is he your best salesperson? And then you can continue down a cascading series of probes. So what a probe is when you have the why, Sometimes you'll get a very expansive answer and you'll be able to get the complete answer. And when you get an, ex an expansive answer to the why, you know you're at a place that analyzes things effectively. Uh, but you shouldn't really just stop there. You should be probing. Why, for instance, in this case, one of the things that Tom did, that w one of the things that they analyzed that Tom did was he didn't sell people cars that he wanted to sell them. He sold cars to the people that he felt that that family needed to buy. So it was more about selling to a need as opposed to creating a need and selling to that. And I remember talking to the finance manager, this was the person I started with, 
And he was very expansive. He would go into how this salesperson knew everybody's birthday, made sure he sent out cards congratulating things like uh, children's weddings or children graduating from college. And you could see from him that the company valued their customer, not because they could buy something from them, but because they were human beings that existed in their customer list. And so it wasn't surprising to me that the sales were always number one in their region. Right. So it was almost like the more the <clears throat> the more that you can know about the other person, the the easier these things seem to be. Yeah. And the the other thing um, I always ask this question about what is you know particularly to the CEO, what is your vision in seven words or less? well-run companies know their vision and they, and they keep it short and they keep it understandable, not only for their customers, but for their employees to execute too. One of my favorite uh, vision statements is from Ikea. Ikea says uh, they sell affordable products for better living. So if you're a customer, you know what you're going to find in that store. If you're an employee, you know not to buy a $10,000 Oriental rug to try to sell to the customer. So it's that clarity of thought uh, that you can pick up too when you ask these questions. Right, got, ah, so it's almost like if they can be very clear and concise with their answers, then, then that seems to give you some sort of clues as to, to what they're like as a person and what the company's like. What would that tell you as someone that wanted to find out if that company was the right company to work for so if i read that if i if we go back to the ikea example uh it would tell you that they've really thought it out but they're very clear with what they want to do and they're very clear with what their vision is and that they care about their customer for better living in this case um so that would, that would give me a clue that this is a well-managed company that's very focused and they care about their customer. And I think for, and I always give this advice to particularly the young people entering the marketplace that come, uh, that come into my client list is always start out with a company that's big and has well-defined, a well-defined mission statement and you can tell that they care about their customer employees because there's nothing more important, I think, to a younger executive than to learn the right way right out of college. Right, I got you so it's almost like uh, developing the habits early on to make their life a bit easier as a, you know, at a later date. Right. Right, cool. So what, what happened next then? So from, in fact, before we get into that, I think you work for a lot of different companies as the, uh, the SFO. No, <laughs> CFO, get that right. Yeah. Um, have you noticed any, any common themes amongst the companies that you've worked with along the, the lines of the, the finances and creating those, those capital market structures and that sort of thing? Have you noticed any common themes? Yeah, the, uh, so one of the things I learned at May Company was how to do the right thing. So when I left May Company, I got recruited to go be the CFO at uh, Foot Locker, um, I saw a, and by the way, when I was at May Company, I always got sent to the turnaround divisions. Wherever there was a division in trouble, they would send me um, initially by accident. And later on, as things got 
uh, my career progressed, they knew they could trust me in a difficult situation. So when the Foot Locker opportunity came up, everybody kind of raised their eyebrows that I would go work there. But I saw a couple of things. One was, it's a great brand. Uh, it's known worldwide. The second thing was that the marketing department did a terrific job. Now, the reason why brand is important, because it's hard to have a business if you don't have a successful brand. So that was the, the first thing I always looked for. And the second thing is, you know, can you work with the people to do a turnaround? And I did see a, a great, a great, some really great people at uh, Foot Locker. And the reason why they were in bankruptcy or almost in bankruptcy was not because of the people and it wasn't because of the brand. It was because of some atrocious decisions that had been made that were easily fixable. So that, so that was one thing I saw at Foot Locker. Cushman and Wakefield, um, and, and only because I had worked for Cushman and Wakefield, they're one of the most respected real, uh, real estate companies in the world. And from what I knew inside and from what I, what I could see outside, that level of commitment to their customers and the quality of how they did the job is why they have a great brand. And Yankee Candle, I think we were talking earlier, Michael, uh, about this. Yankee, Yankee Candle has a great brand. It's the number one rated brand by its consumer in America. And when you look under the cover and you ask, why is that? You see a commitment by their employees, not just their CEO, but even the people that work making the candles, a real commitment to qualities and success. For instance, the Yankee Candle burns just as effectively in its first hour as it does in its 70th hour. And that's something if you ask the employees at Yankee Candy, they'll tell you it's one of the things they're most proud of is they deliver a consistent message to their customer. So these values of having a great brand, serving your customer and caring about employees, those were the things that I saw at Yankee Candle, Cushman Wakefield and Foot Locker. And that's why I went to work for them. Right, so it's, it's almost like it kind of comes back to what you were saying before about the likes of core values as well. Like if everyone has the, the same core values, it stands to reason then that you'd be able to see that. You'd be able to observe them sort of living their values, one of the better expression, but it would be from, from the bottom up, you know, from the CEO all the way down to the people that make the candles, from the people that make the candles all the way up to the CEO. You can kind of see how, how the values play out. And if, if someone is, is proud of their work, I mean, it's, it's always nice when someone cares that much about quality, just, just from the day-to-day goings-on of, of making candles or, or selling real estate or whatever it happens to be. So what, what value, this is going to sound a bit of a roundabout question now, but what, what value do you place on finding the values of the people that work at the company and making sure that they're in alignment with the company's values themselves? Yeah, it's a great question, Michael. Um, so the values, I, I laid them out earlier. You know, it, number one, it starts with integrity, uh, a willingness to get things done, uh, they develop other people, or in other words, they make other people better. Uh, they listen to learn, learn and analyze effectively. Now, that's really easy to say, and, and everybody would agree with that. But there's two other parts to it that are really critical to get to the point you were making. 
The first is with leadership. I would find every day, and I, I was fortunate enough early in my career to witness this with CEOs, every day that you're in the office and every moment, you have to, as a leader, exhibit those traits. You can't do it 90% of the time or 95% of the time. You have to strive to do it 100% of the time. And the point that you made was everybody sees that and they emulate that. So it really starts at the top of how the leaders behave is how the employees are going to behave. So if you as an individual, particularly if you're a leader, can maintain that, that helps the rest of the corporation know what to do and how to behave. So that's the, the first point. The second point is you must have an engaged system of hiring and promoting around those five values. So what does that mean? You can interview a lot of people with great resumes. They've gone to Stanford. They've worked at McKinsey. Uh, they have just a wonderful background. What we, the companies I worked at, we, we look beyond just the resume. It's terrific, and I'm not being negative about Stanford. It's terrific that somebody took the initiative to go to Stanford. But can they do those five things? Because uh, if you make a habit out of hiring shiny pennies that don't have your core values, you're going to be off course. So the first thing is when you're hiring and promoting people, to, you have to have a checklist. And we would have for each one of these values, we'd have 13 questions that we would ask. We wouldn't ask all 13. We'd ask three around each one of these core values to evaluate the person that we were hiring. Did they have that competency? Now, that's part A of that. Part B of that is when we would do our annual review, reviews, we rewarded people based off their results in these five categories. So in other words, your promotion was directly tied to the results that you produced within the core values of the company. So I know that's a long-winded answer, but first, leadership has to believe in these values and live these values 100% of the time. Uh, which is impossible, but as often as they can, so that the rest of the corporation understands what to do next. Two, you have to hire, around, hire, promote around these values. And number three, when you do your annual reviews or your periodic reviews with people, you should be measuring them against their ability to measure up to the cultural values of the company as well as their results. Right. I mean, just, just to kind of maybe echo what you said there it seems to me at least that the the values that you have they tend to be the the lens through which you make all your decisions or the lens that you you hire all of the the people that are in your company and all those kinds of things i mean it it gives the impression that it it's it might be harder to find the right person for the company but once you found that person it can make the it can make the rest of the journey that so much easier and it seems to give give me at least uh, the sense of it's about quality over quantity when it comes to that like you can hire a hundred people that might be completely misaligned with with everything that the company stands for but then you can hire like 10 people that are perfectly aligned and they might do the same job or at least a similar job to those people that might not 
you know really care about things as much as as those people might they might not have that that same they might not have the same level of, of integrity with themselves and it's yes yeah, it definitely seems like it's about quality over quantity from from my end yeah i mean that it, it gets it got back to this point i made earlier you can hire somebody right because you have a need to fill but in the end you may not actually be making any progress if you take the extra time to search and look and ask the questions and find that one oak tree amongst the field of weeds, you're so much better off in a, on a longer term. And then sure, there'll be short-term pain because you may have the opening for a little bit longer, uh, but the ability to be patient and stick to your standards is extraordinarily helpful for the rest of the company. When you hire somebody that other people like to work with, that, that is honest, that is um, always focused on getting the job done right and getting it done, it makes everybody else's life easier. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, it certainly comes across that way from for what you said there. So, I mean, you, you've got the, the most recent book that you've got coming out with Jesus and Co. So... How does this fit in with the idea of religion or faith or, or indeed Jesus him, himself in terms of, you know, how, how does all this actually fit in with, with that concept? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I've, I've, I'm just finishing up seven years of going to school and, you know, with a, a big emphasis on Christian ethics. So uh, three of those years was getting a master's and then the other four been getting a doctorate degree. And at the same time, still running um, Gideon Partners. And one of the things that I was able to do, Michael, was these, some of these core values that we talked about and uh, during this interview, I was able to blend them into the book, Jesus and Company. So for instance, what you'll see in the book is a, it's a collection of stories of modern business heroes that go all the way from Sharon Watkins, who was the person that uh, un unveiled the problem at Enron, to just the common person that would work unnoticed in a company, but recognizing that they're value. So, so with that, I had this group of people, and I connected them to the actual words of Jesus, not what some a preachy person would tell you to think, but more how you could reflect on Jesus said this, and this individual did the same thing, so that individuals, when they read the book, can get the reinforcing message about what, what we are required to do in the marketplace and connect it back to uh, the first century when Jesus worked. Now, one of the things that I want to say is that this isn't a book that's going to say if, if you don't do this, you're going to go to hell. It's not fire and brimstone. This is, <laughs> no. this is, a, uh, this is a, a, it's a book that helps people evaluate and think, not tell them what to think. And it answers, it helps people answer this question, particularly people in the business place. The number one question we ask ourselves subconsciously in almost every inter interaction in every transaction is what ought we to do so underlying every business decision every interaction every conversation is we're answering the question of what ought we to do the more often we can answer that in a way that helps our customers helps our employees helps our 
company helps the world, the more often we can answer that in the favor of those four things, the better the world will be. And that's really the purpose of the book. It isn't, the purpose of the book isn't to say, if you don't do this, you're gonna to go to hell. This is, the purpose of the book is to give people the living water as opposed to a doomsday scenario. Uh, so we took, I took a lot of my, a lot of what we just talked about is in the book and it's connected to very specific phrases from Jesus. Now, what a lot of people don't realize um, in the 21st century is that Jesus was actually a businessman. He was referred to as a carpenter. He grew up in this uh, town of Nazareth, worked for his dad, and then later on, most likely, and according to some of the ancient re uh, writings, he actually ran a small business and made yokes, yokes for cows to plow. So Jesus understood this. Now, I'll give you a startling fact that, that most people don't realize. This, Jesus spoke in the terms of parables. And there's 42 of them in the, in, the, uh, in the New Testament. 35 of those 42 parables relate to commercial language. So, for instance, there's the parable of the coins. There's the parable of the shrewd and wise manager. There's the parable of the lost coin. Jesus frequently spoke to his community in business terms. So the, what the book does is it connects those business terms of the first century to the great heroes of the 21st century. Right, got you. I mean, for, for what you, you I mean, something that you said before that I think kind of stuck with me is that a lot of people, you might tend to read maybe too much in terms of what, what you said and what it meant. So I think that could be one of the issues with speaking in, in like parables and that sort of nature is people will take different meanings from it, won't they? Because he's talking in, in stories to a certain extent. But you're saying that you take actual phrases from what he said and then it's a bit more of an, a bit more of a, I don't know, uh, I guess it's more exact maybe like you're not reading too much into what he's saying you're kind of taking as as the words that he used as the the things that he did actually say and then you're then able to to go out and find that in the the business world yes you know there's obviously uh multiple meetings but if i give you the if, if you don't mind i'll give you the historical backdrop between yeah, sure. why, why jesus spoke in parables uh when I first read this statistic, I was kind of stunned. Uh, the first century person, like you and you and myself, Michael, there's only a 5% chance either one of us could read and write. So at first we could say with horror, what, a, what is an illiterate group of people? Why, why was this the case? So if you study ancient writings, for instance, Hebrew is not written left to right. It's written right to left. And it works the opposite of the way the mind works, number one. Number two, ancient Hebrew didn't use vowels. And as you know, vowels are the most important connecting letter in a sentence or in a word. So imagine mm -hmm. a word without vowels in it and having to figure out what it, what it meant. The, <laughs> the, the third thing in the first century, the, one of the things we take for granted is spaces. So when you read Michael McDonald on a piece of paper, there's a space between the L and the M, mm -hmm. right? In ancient, the ancient texts of the scribes wouldn't do, necessarily do that. So take, uh, a, okay. so take a simple sentence as I've just described to you as see Dick run. 
now how that would be how that would be read how you would read that is n r k c d s and from that you were supposed to figure out c dip one so the the writing styles weren't conducive to having high literacy it's only been over the last 2000 years that the sense of literacy in the sense of writing in a way that others could read has really increased. So what, what, what could Jesus do? Because he wanted people to remember what he had to say. So that's why he spoke in parables. And the parables were designed to create a memory. And I'll give you a good example after I finish this. So the parable, he wanted that to stick in people's minds. So he would tell these stories, but he would also tell the stories around how they lived. Most people have to work. So if you were Jesus, you would speak to them in terms of their work lives and you would do it with stories that they could remember. So for instance, uh, Aesop Fables is a good example of this type of communication that occurred in the ancient world. We all know the story of the tortoise and the hare because we remember the story and we have a visual about uh, going fast doesn't necessarily mean you're going to finish first. That's the story of the tortoise and the hare. And that's all you really need to know about that, that, that fable. And it's similar to what Jesus did with the parables, creating these images that would make people understand what life was. And he used a lot of commercial language to do that. Just, oh, I don't know, just when you mentioned that they don't, they don't use um, vowels and things, I mean, it must, it, it must make it harder to, to make it relatable to, to present day. I mean, I guess the fact that, that Jesus spoke in terms of the, the business language might have made it easier for yourself to, to initially write the book. You know, it's like, uh, it's probably easier to do that because he used that sort of language but it must be hard to interpret. I mean, it's probably not your job, you know. <laughs> I imagine there's, there's a lot of other people that, that had the, uh, the task of trying to translate it or interpret it or whatever it happens to be. I mean, it sounds, sounds like a very difficult job just to do that. Well, it is. It, it would be except for two things. Uh, number one is the internet. I can sit at my desk, Michael, and read a scholarly article about the, a couple of generations after Jesus just at my desk. You know, if you, if you went back 10 or 15 years ago and you were trying to get your doctorate degree, you would have to comb through libraries in the basement of these libraries to find some of these texts. But now because of the world of uh, the digital world, I literally sit, uh, my thesis that I wrote uh, occurred 100% at my desk, but I had access <laughs> to all of those things from that, that people had to walk and make appointments to visit and sit down and scour through books. And uh, Google is, uh, and this other thing called Atla Database, they've brought all this information um, to us. And, and all you really have to do is just type in search. Now, I shouldn't, I mean, you still got to read the document and you got to understand it. And that is time consuming, but it's probably a tenth of the time that somebody had would take somebody 10 or 20, 20 years ago. The second thing is I've, uh, I've walked the land of business for 35 years. And for the last seven years, I've walked the land of theology. 
So for me, particularly as a business person, I have observations about theology that I can bring into business and vice versa. I can go the other way. So it is a unique skill set. So I get asked this question a lot. Was it hard? I, to be frank with you, I could agree with you, but it wouldn't be right. It was a joyous process for me and one that I, got, I would get up most mornings at four or five o'clock and just totally look forward to doing this and putting this puzzle together and writing Jesus and company was really a great joy in my life um, as opposed to hard work. Yeah, I mean, it almost doesn't really matter how, how long the journey is if you're enjoying it, does it? I mean, so you've been, you've been in business for, for 35 years, well, more than 35 years now. Have you got any like key lessons with someone that doesn't have your experience so we are nearing the end so this this can be your chance to round things off give the the best bit of advice that you can to someone without your experience so i'll tell you what i tell a lot of recent college graduates uh, the, the two things that i tell them is one is your work your work life is going to be your identity it is going to say who you are and what you are so whatever it is that you do do because you enjoy doing it. So do you look forward to getting up in the morning? And if you can say yes to that, then you're doing what you love to do. The second thing is whatever you do, do it with the best you can and with the most integrity that you can. It, it, because nothing is worth achieving if it, isn't, if it isn't something that you can do with integrity and do the best that you can because otherwise you're going to produce a sloppy product. So the two things I always tell folks is, it, 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 I think we all want to be president of the United States or prime minister of UK, uh, but it may not be what's going to make us happiest or give us the greatest joy in our lives. So for young folks, you should do what, it, you, you should do what's going to make you happy because it is going to be your identity. Number one. Number two, whatever you do, don't do it just to make money. Do it to do it well and do it in a way that creates a great reputation for you and becomes a model for other people. I will completely agree with that, Bruce. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's something that I guess we're trying to, to get through to people younger and younger, I've noticed. Like, um, just from the, the other guests that I've had on and the, <clears throat> the other people that I've spoken to, it used to be, like, w when you graduate from, from college or university, that was the advice that, that used to be given. That used to be the, the kind of the motivational speech that you would get at the end of college or university. But I found that people value that younger. Like, they value it when they're going through that system because they've still got to make choices. They've still got to make decisions. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, still, it's still valued. It's valued by younger people, I found. It is. Uh, a lot of the, particularly the younger people I talk to, it's a little countercultural to what the university said to them because universities have become vocational. And I think one of the great values of education is learning, um, is learning about life and learning about what, what is, your strengths are and about your weaknesses. And not everybody's going to be the prime minister of, of the UK, but everybody has a value in society and in their own life. 
And understanding that and trying to find out what that is, I think is the most important thing to do. <clears throat> yeah, for sure. I mean, just, just getting back to the example that you gave, I mean, the, the, uh, about Yankee Candles, there are people that are proud I mean, it's, it's not it's not something that I would be proud in. I'm not a big fan of, of candles myself, although I do have friends that, that are. But there are people that are proud of making sure that the candles are of a high quality and they're making candles. There are other people that that won't have that same feeling from the work that they're doing. So they probably shouldn't do that. You know, right. if, if they're, that there are people out there that will love like really, really love getting out of bed and doing the jobs that you don't particularly want to do. And I think that from what you said, we need to allow that. We need to allow people to do what they want to do because I think that they'll still, I mean, personally, this is just an opinion now, but personally, I think the jobs will still be filled if they were filled with people that wanted to do them rather than just being given to people even if they don't want to do them. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. There's intrinsic, uh, uh, there's intrinsic value in every human being and every human being, it, it, it's helpful if every human being finds out what their intrinsic value is and focuses on that first. Uh, a, a lot of people, you know, one of the problems in the U.S. Uh, educational system right now is we're producing a lot of uh, great college graduates that are dissatisfied once they graduate. One, because there's not enough jobs for them because we've, over, uh, we've overemphasized uh, certain vocations. And the second thing is they're not happy because it isn't what they want to do. The jobs that are not, not being filled are the jobs of the everyday person who can be just as equally happy and just as... Uh, as um, it's it just it, it's the same amount of contributions to society and to their lives and give them identity. So I think we, we sometimes promote making money is the most important thing to do in life. But what I'm saying is different, you know, making sure you're doing what helps the world and lives into your intrinsic value. That's the most important thing to do with your career because not everybody's going to be, a president or a prime minister or, or a billionaire um, and then they won't find happiness that way mm, yeah all right well we are nearing the end bruce so last last couple of questions for you where can people go if they would like to find out a bit more about you so this is a chance to share websites and links and, and that sort of thing okay my uh, my website is www Bruce L. Hartman.com. That's the website. So it's www.brucelhartman.com. That's the website. The book is available on amazon.com. Uh, we don't have it available in bookstores in UK yet. Uh, and you can go on amazon.com and type in Jesus and company. And the, it's a, it's not the word and, it's the sign, symbol and. Oh. <clears throat> okay, cool. Do you hang out on, on social media as well? Where do you spend most of your time on the, 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 the social side? Um, I do spend some time on Facebook and LinkedIn. I would say those are probably the two most frequent places I go to. I, I'd like Twitter. 
mostly to observe and listen to what other people are saying. And I, I love the images on Instagram, but principally Facebook and LinkedIn are the two places that I go socially. Okay, cool. Sounds good. So, yeah, if you're interested in learning the the slightly religious side, but more of the the, the core principle side of if working in a company or starting your own business, then I would recommend that you pick up the book. And last question that I ask everybody, Bruce, is what would you like the world to know about you that it doesn't already know? <laughs> well, that's a tough question. I appreciate where you're coming from. <laughs> it is. I, I think that what I would like the world to know is that I sincerely and honestly try every day to help somebody. All right, <laughs> as simple as that. Yeah. Right, Bruce. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's something that we can, well, at least I can tell from the the conversation that we've had today, and I hope we can tick tick the box on that for yourself. So, I'm glad that you took the time out to be a guest on the show, and I'm I'm sure we'll we'll keep in touch. Yeah, and uh, thank you, Mike, for a great opportunity. Really enjoyed this.